Matthew 13. So we're going to be today. And the title today is Rejoice and Leap for Joy. So it just kind of ends up that I think this is going to work pretty well with the whole Thanksgiving theme. But we are in a series titled The Demands of Discipleship. Basically, we're looking at what does it mean to be a disciple, and one thing we have talked about here every single week, a disciple is one who follows Jesus. What that means is that we learn Jesus, but we learn Jesus. We, we learn about who he is and what he has done for us, not so that we just have knowledge, not just so we have facts, but that so we would be transformed and live like him. The learning has a purpose. It's transformational. So we learn Jesus in order to live and love like him. And what we're going to see today is that as disciples, we're called to rejoice and leap for joy. We're called to be a people full of joy, full of thanksgiving, full of happiness. Uh, Blaise Pascal, the 17th century philosopher, mathematician, this is what he said. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they tend to this end. The will never takes the least step but to the object of delight. What he's saying is everything you and I do as people is for the pursuit of pleasure, is for the purpose of delighting ourselves. Now because of sin, what we see is that we will um, we'll often settle for lesser joys in this world. But as today, what we're going to see is that in our text that the tr- um, all the treasures of the world fail in comparison to the matchless joy and worth of God's kingdom. So that's where we're going to be at today. We're looking at God's kingdom and the joy we have as being citizens of it. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and stand. We're going to be in chapter 13, verses 44 through 46 of Matthew. Chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. And we praise you. That, that Father, you and all of your beauty and all of your glory and all of your wonder and all of your might, you have revealed yourself to us that we would know you, that we could be in a relationship with us. You sent your son Jesus to die on a cross so we could be saved by grace and we could have everlasting life where we would dwell in your presence. And so, Father, I pray that our hearts, that our souls are made well today, are full of joy, brimming over with joy as we think of your goodness, of your kindness, of your greatness, and all that you have done for us so that we would spend eternity in your presence. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Matthew 13, the entire chapter is about Jesus explaining the kingdom of God. And he's going to be explaining it through parables. Now, parables are kind of an interesting form of communication. 
If you, if you look up definitions of parables, some people will say, well, they're neat little stories that are meant to help the listeners remember them. Um, but what we really see is that Jesus uses parables, which are a means of illustration, but for the point, uh, some people will hear the truth and some people won't hear the truth. We're told that parables reveal and conceal truth. So for those who believe in Jesus, the truth is revealed. They see the, the truth within the parable. For those who reject Jesus, then all they hear is a story. All they hear is, is a picture, but they do not hear the truth that Jesus is actually communicating. And in all of chapter 13, he's speaking about the kingdom of heaven. So what is the kingdom of heaven? Um, well, the kingdom of heaven is the same as the kingdom of God. Matthew will say kingdom of heaven, but Mark and Luke and others will use kingdom of God. Now, just in the first century as well as today, Jews would not use the word God, the word Yahweh. It was too holy. And so often they would substitute that for the word heaven or the word blessed. So that's why when you come to Matthew, who he's writing a gospel primarily to a Jewish audience, rather than use the word God, he uses the word heaven. Now, when Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, he's referring to those who believe in him and will thus forever experience God's perfect, sovereign, holy, loving, merciful, gracious rule over their lives. He's talking about what it is to be in the kingdom, to enjoy the benefits of the kingdom. And so when Jesus is explaining the value and worth of the kingdom, he's saying, for all those who enter, for all those who believe in me and are citizens of the kingdom, this is what that's like. And the first thing, and the primary thing, that we're going to see today is that the kingdom of God is a matchless treasure. It's a treasure that far surpasses all other treasures. And real quick, when you look at parables, usually they have one main point. Just so you know, usually it's one main point. Sometimes you might be able to pull out a few others. You got to be careful because, because it's kind of a picture that Jesus is using. If you pick apart any piece too much, the parable will kind of fall apart. But it always has at least one main point. And the main point of these two parables that are side by side is so that we would see the infinite worth of the kingdom of God. If you look at it in verse 44, where the man finds a treasure in a field. In verse 45, a merchant finds a pearl that far surpasses all other pearls and treasures. But the point is, the point is not that just the kingdom of God is any treasure. The point is that the kingdom of God is a matchless treasure. It surpasses the worth of everything else. And we see that in response of both men to the treasure they find. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at each of these parables, just one at a time. First, the man who finds a treasure in a field. Now, finding buried treasure was not super uncommon back then. Uh, there were no banks in the first century. Uh, so when people would often take these pots of, these jars of clay, and they would put money, they'd put gold, they'd put silver, they'd put pearls, they might even put some food inside of them in order to keep them safe keep them from thieves. And also, for, for over a hundred years, Palestine had been a battleground, and so they would often bury, uh, bury their treasures to keep them from enemies, uh, from enemy soldiers that would come and plunder the land. And so it was not a rare thing for someone to be walking through a field and 
find to discover some type of treasure that had been buried. Now, the important part of the parable is what the man does when he finds the treasure. He sells everything he has. That's the point. He sells everything he has to gain this one treasure. Gaining this treasure is far more valuable than all the other possessions that he owns. Now, sometimes we get a little distracted on this parable, and we often go, but he did bury it. And then he went and bought it. Was that something wrong? Was he concealing it? Is he stealing? Is he doing something morally and ethically wrong? Uh, He's not. Back in the first century, the rule was, what is found belongs to the finder. Our our children know that rule, right? I found it. It's mine now. Um, And and besides, if the man had gone and bought the field, the owner would have gone and and, and dug up any treasure that he had in there prior to the selling of it. So the guy is doing nothing wrong in in, in how he goes about, about it. But Jesus, for one, he's not teaching us on the ethics of buying a field. Again, we can get distracted on various things. The main point is what he does. He finds this treasure, and upon finding it, he says, I'll sell everything I have to gain this. Gaining this is better than all my other treasures that I own. We see the same thing in the next parable. A merchant finds a great pearl. In this parable, we see a merchant, he's searching for treasures. He's probably a wealthy man, buying and selling treasures, and then he comes across this gigantic pearl. And I don't know, in my head, ever since I was young, I just get this idea, he sees a pearl, and it's just massive, like the size of a basketball or something. But we have no idea. Now, pearls in the first century were by far the most valuable of all gems, more valuable than gold, more valuable than silver. In fact, do you remember... What the, the, when John has in Revelation 21, that vision of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, what were the gates made of? You remember? Pearls. There's 12 gigantic pearls showing the infinite value of coming into this kingdom. So what does the merchant do when he finds this pearl? He sells everything he has. He sells everything he has. This pearl was a far greater treasure than all the other treasures he had combined. Let me just take a moment too, and I, I do think it is worth noting that one guy stumbles and one guy is looking for treasure. You just notice that? One guy stumbles across treasure. He's not looking, but he finds it. Their guy knows what treasure is, and he's looking for something valuable. And we want to be careful that we don't press these too far, but I do wonder if that could be comparable to how we often find Jesus today. In fact, you might be here today, and you're only here because someone invited you, and like, well, I don't even know why I'm at church. Or possibly, you, you know, you have that neighbor, and they have no desire to talk about anything about Jesus, anything about religion. They just go on about their life. And yet here we have that God often brings grace into their life, that even when they're not looking, that, he will, that God will pour grace and he will open their eyes. And then we have a guy who's looking for treasure. Maybe this is a guy who, who looks at different religions and he studies everything. And he goes, I know there's meaning. I know that there's real meaning to this world. And he's looking at everything. And upon finding Jesus, he says, this is far greater than every other treasure. So I just encourage you, for whatever means you are here today, 
that God has a purpose that we together would see the beauty of his kingdom. And I just want to encourage you, when you're out talking with people, there are some people who are discovering, who are looking for treasure, who are looking for the meaning of life, who are looking for what's going to put sense to everything in this world, and there are other people who are not. And there's, there's something every, in, in, all in between. But God's grace is sufficient to save each and every one of them. And so I encourage you, to share the gospel boldly, no matter where people are. You might just be sowing seeds. We don't know, but God gives growth, and we see that here in this parable. But both of these parables, they speak of the incomparable worth, the matchless worth of the kingdom of God. Now think about it. If there is a God who rules over all the cosmos, is infinite in power and might and love and goodness, what could be better than forever experiencing his rule and blessing in our lives. What could be better than being eternally satisfied with his everlasting, perfect love? There could be nothing better than that. In fact, what I want to do is just take a moment and just remind us of the story of the Bible on why this kingdom of God is so necessary and so beautiful. Many of you know, we spend a lot of time always going back to Genesis and kind of walking through. In Genesis, we see that God creates everything, and he calls it good. And then he creates man in his image, man and woman, he creates them. And in, their, and in his image, they're created so that they would know God, that they would love God, that they'd be in a relationship with God, that they would be citizens in his kingdom, representing God in all the world. But then we know real quick in chapter, chapter 3, Man decides that he thinks he can have more pleasure and more joy apart from God than with God and under his rule. So man sins and rebels against God. And at that moment, we see that they're removed from the garden, that death enters into this world, that there's pain and destruction. And what we're told in God's word is because now we are sinners before God, because we reject him, because we rebel against him. That rather than his goodness and his grace and his kindness being directed towards us, rather than the blessings of the kingdom, rather we become enemies of the kingdom, and we are told that there is a day coming where he will come to this earth, and all who have not believed in him will forever suffer his eternal fiery wrath. And even after being under his judgment for a million years, his wrath will not diminish one ounce. And so that is the state that we're all in as we're born in this world. And yet that's why God sends his son Jesus. That his son Jesus would come and go to the cross and die in your place and my place so that he could do, remember that big word, propitiation? We use like, he would absorb God's wrath on our behalf so that by believing in him, we could be justified. We could have peace with God. We could be adopted. We who are outside the kingdom could be transferred inside the kingdom. We could go from enemies to citizens. We could go from rebels to sons. So that forever he will then bestow his everlasting grace and peace upon our life. That's the story of the Bible. Apart from God, we have nothing except his wrath. But because of his son Jesus, we can be spared and have everlasting life. And so the point of these parables is that coming into this kingdom of God, there is nothing that compares with this joy. 
There is no sex, no money, no power, no possessions, no pleasures or prestige that will ultimately satisfy all those things. And from cover to cover of Scripture, we see will pass away. He's not saying none of those things are good, but none of those things will bring full satisfaction. And none of them can spare us the wrath of God's fiery torment on our souls. That's why both of these men, when they see the beauty of the kingdom of God, they sell everything they have so they can become part of this kingdom. In fact, if you remember the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, he gives his testimony. And his testimony basically fleshes out these parables. In Philippians 3, uh, Paul's going to say all that he had. He's going to talk about how he was born of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. That he had honor and respect of everyone else. When people saw Paul, they stopped and said, now that's a great man. They'd be in awe of him, of his education, of his power, of his ability to speak and argue. And looked up to this man. And then in Philippians 4, Verses 7 and 8, this is what, or Philippians 3, 7 and 8, this is what he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. And he says, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul had Everything in the world that the world says is of value, that the world says is gain. And then he looks at the kingdom and he says, All of this is rubbish. All of this is worth nothing compared to the insurpassing worth of Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Do you see how Paul's story, his testimony, parallels that of these parables? And if you're here today, if you believe in Jesus, that's your story. Your story is these parables. Your story is the very same as Paul in chapter 3 of Philippians. Because when we come to Christ, the only way we believe in him is when we say, a crucified Messiah who rose three days later, and we're going to worship him, is far greater than everything else. The only reason we believe in that is because of God's grace and seeing the infinite value and worth of Jesus. So just as Paul gladly gives up all that he has in the world for the sake of Christ, so we do also when we believe in it. And so, so the question then that I wrestle with is as I'm looking at Matthew 13, is that if the kingdom of God is of matchless worth, then why do so many people not see it? Have you ever thought about that? And give us of such matchless worth. If it's of insurpassable value, why doesn't everyone just run into it? And so there's many, many answers, but I, I came up with three. Number one, sin blinds humanity to the divine theater of God's creation. If you think about it, when man looks, sinful man looks at creation, he refuses to believe in the creator. Man will, will create endless reasons for the existence of the world in order to rule out the possibility of the one true God of the Bible. I mean, especially here in America, when sinful man looks at the intricacies of the world and all the systems that must be perfectly in place in order to sustain life, they would rather believe in random chaotic chance than to believe in a grand designer. 
The first thing we have to see is that sin denies and rejects God. It refuses to see the beauty of God. We see it in Romans 1, when Paul is describing what sin does to us, and he says that we have exchanged the glory of God for the glory of creation. We'd rather worship the things that we create rather than the creator who made us. So one, we, we have a bent in our souls and our very nature to not believe in God. Number two, sinful humanity is far too easily pleased with temporary pleasures. Many of you know C.S. Lewis. He wrote a book called Mere Christianity. And here's a quote from that book. He says, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You ever think about that? We are far too easily pleased. Think about those words. The guy who looks at porn or fills his life with one-night stands is settling for finite, momentary pleasure rather than eternal riches of Christ. The person who satisfies himself with drugs, with alcohol, with power, with money, with devotion to his job is settling for pleasures that in the end will all fail to satisfy. You see, sin causes us to look for joy in anything other than Jesus. Sin says mud pies in your backyard are better than a day at the beach. Do you know that? That's what sin wants you to do. It creates, it it makes us narrow-minded that all we can see is directly what's in front of us and we miss everything else. Jesus said in Luke 9, 25, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? You ever think about that? Like you can literally have everything. And you can still go to hell. You have everything this world says is of value. And you can still go to hell. Jesus' point is if we seek to satisfy our hearts with the things of the world, then we're like a man who puts a noose around his own neck and then kicks out the chair underneath himself. The things of the world will not satisfy. But they will condemn us on that day that Jesus returns. So I want you to just think about that. This is the problem with sinful. This is you and I apart from the grace of Jesus, right? And this is where, where our neighbors, where our coworkers, where unbelievers are at this moment. So I want, I want to just give a hint, give you a tip. If we're to be good evangelists, we need to be good listeners. And one of the things that we need to do is go, what are they putting their hope in? What are they hoping is going to satisfy them? If they get what they're achieving, is that going to give them everlasting satisfaction? And so we want to listen for those things. And this is the thing that I've been working on is is how do we listen for what people are trusting in? So that then we can hopefully begin to show them how Christ is a much, much greater pleasure, a much greater joy. And again, we're not against here in this church, we're not against money. We're against pleasures. We're not against any of those things that God has created for us, but we're against making good things ultimate things. 
And so what we want to do is help not only one another, but also those we love who are not yet believers into seeing the goodness, but also the futility of trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ. So we need to listen to what people are trusting in. And number three, and this one's more directed at us. Why do people not see the beauty of the kingdom? Because Christians are often distracted by worldly pleasures. If you remember in 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul talks about a guy named Demas. Do you remember him? And he says, Demas left me because he loved the world more than the gospel. As Christians, we often get distracted from the matchless treasures of God's kingdom by the finite things in this world. And so I just want to ask you today, is there anything in your life that's rivaling your love for Jesus? Your love for the gospel? Is there... Maybe, maybe another way to think about that is, what gets in your way of reading the Bible, of spending time in prayer, of gathering with other believers, of coming together at the church? I just want you to think through. Is there anything that's, that gets in the way? Are you more interested in hobbies, your family, your, your possessions than your love for Jesus? Are you seeking satisfaction and joy in things other than Christ? I mean, it's easy to go, okay, this is where unbelievers are, but oftentimes we're struggling with the very same sins. Sex, porn, money, relationships. I think, I think we can always ask ourselves, will whatever we're seeking today be all satisfying in five years, in 10 years, in 15 years, in 30 years, in 40 years? Whatever we desire now, in 40 or 50 years, are we going to say, I want to go at it at the same pursuit that I'm doing right now? Is it worth it? Sin always wants to get us to focus on things other than Jesus. It will try, sin will try to convince us that the satisfaction of our immediate desire is more important than the everlasting joy of Jesus. Uh, here's an example. A lot of times people struggle with, with reading the Bible. And so I'll often talk with them. I'll say, well, when do you do that? And say, well, I'm not really sure. And they'll say, well, I'm not a morning person. I'll say, well, are you a night person? Well, not really either. <laughs> They're a sleeping person is what they are. Um, but you'll lie in bed because you want 10 more sleep, 10, 10 more sleep, 10 more minutes of sleep than getting up and reading God's word. You'll say, I prioritize these 10 minutes, which I'm not against sleep. And you might not be the morning person that reads your Bible in the morning, which is fine. But what we're saying is this sleep is of more value. Or watching TV, I have, I have time to watch my shows, just don't have time to gather with the church or spend time praying. Again, it's the immediate. We look and all of a sudden our minds are consumed with the things that we can do right now and we will avoid doing that which God has called us to do where we're experiencing his joy and his grace. Sin will always try to make the pleasures of the now seem more weighty than the pleasures of the future. So I want to pause. Do you know where the title Rejoice and Leap for Joy comes from? Does that sound familiar to any of you? It is, it is from the Bible. If you have your Bibles, if you just turn over to Luke chapter 6, just a little bit to the right. So in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus gives a sermon on the mount. And in Luke chapter 6, he gives, uh, Luke gives kind of an abbreviated version of the sermon on the mount. 
In Luke chapter 6, verse 22 to 23, this is what Jesus says. He says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. Do you see it? Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Now think about it. Why does Jesus say we are blessed when we are persecuted? Why does Jesus command us to rejoice and leap for joy? Because he says your reward in heaven is so great, so satisfying, so superior to any earthly pleasure that it far surpasses the pain of any persecution that you experience. Do you know that? The joy that God gives us now and in heaven, Jesus is saying, far surpasses anything the world that can do for you. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, he said, the suffering that I'm experiencing, and if you go back and read 2 Corinthians, he experiences a lot of suffering, and he says, it's just simply momentary affliction. And it's preparing me. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's what he says. Paul says, when I think of Jesus and all that he's done for us, and I think of the eternal weight of God's glory, that I'll be spending eternity with him, and I look at the pain or suffering or anything that goes on in this world, he says, that far outweighs it. I'm willing, to call, I'm willing to risk anything because of what I have in Christ. We overcome the lesser finite joy of sin with the greater everlasting joy of the gospel of Jesus. In fact, uh, many of you all know Bobby Gaither, one of my friends. He's a pastor. He comes here and preaches at times. We podcast together. Right now, we're podcasting through the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew 5, I think it's 8, maybe 7, maybe 8, he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Just think about that. If our desire is, is to follow God, is to be with God, then we will see him and be with him and be made like him for all of eternity. Now think about that. To pure in heart, to want the things that God wants. When there are things that come in your life that go against the gospel, that go against the kingdom, what Jesus is saying there, what Paul is saying in our parts of scripture, is that we compare that to the infinite worth that God gives us. And we say, do I want to see God more or do I want to pursue in the next five minutes whatever this sin is or this pleasure is? And he's saying the way we overcome these lesser finite joys is by reminding ourselves of the infinite joy we have in Jesus, that we've been saved, and that there's a day coming when he's going to return and we will spend eternity with him, made like him. And we come back to our text in Matthew 13. We see that for our joy, we can lose everything to gain Christ. For our joy, we can lose everything to gain Christ. Look at verse 44 back in Matthew 13. Sorry, I had you turn your Bibles. Hopefully you can find it again quick. Matthew 13, 44. Notice what the guy who goes in the field, he finds a treasure. How does he go and sell everything that he has? Do you notice? It describes it. In his joy. Here we have a guy that he has all this other treasure. And he says, it is my joy to throw it all away for the sake of Christ. I'll give it all up. Do you know that Jesus is for your joy and for your pleasure? Do you know that? 
In fact, the whole story of the Bible is that because we've rejected God, we're now in pain, we're separated from Him, we experience depression and anger, and yet God, by sending His Son Jesus, redeems us that we'd once again experience the blessing and the joy and the pleasures of Him for everlasting. John 15, 11, this is what Jesus says. He says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy would be full. Do you know Jesus wants your joy to be full? John 16, 24, ask and you receive that your joy may be full. Matthew 25, 21, Jesus uses another parable and he says, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Do you know Jesus wants your joy? In fact, that's the hope that we have is that when Jesus returns, he will turn to each and every one of us and he will say, you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The whole gospel is about God saving us from settling with mud pies in our backyard that he'd bring us into the kingdom of God for all of eternity where we'd be overwhelmed with his goodness and his grace. This is why when we talk about what it is to be a Christian, that we say we're to be full of joy. We're to demonstrate, we're to display the love that we have in Christ because we've experienced His grace. We know that we have eternal life now inside of us. Do you know that because of Jesus, you have no reason to fear death? You have no reason. You have no reason to be anxious about life. Do you know that? Now sin will want to twist things in our world and make us want to be anxious about things. But when we know that Jesus is the maker of all things, the sustainer of all things, and God himself calls, calls himself our Father, who delights in giving us the things that we ask for, what do we need to be anxious for? Jesus didn't save you for a mediocre life. Do you know that? He saved you that we would rejoice and leap for joy from now through all of eternity. Think about it. Many of you might know the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is all kind of about how Christians are going to suffer. And he com- continues to compare it to the sufferings of Jesus. And in your first time reading it, you're like, wow, this is kind of a grim picture in, in some ways. But in 1 Peter 3.15, Peter says, the world ought to look at us and all the suffering that we go through and then, and then ought to ask us, why do you have so much hope? That's what 1 Peter 3.15 is. We always ought to be ready to give a reason for the hope we have. So in a book full of suffering, he says, but we're to be people of hope. Now hope has to be displayed. Hope is revealed. Why are we hopeful? Why do we have a hope that is stronger in suffering? Because Jesus is our king, and we're citizens of his kingdom. And we're told that when this world will one day be rolled up and burned up, that he will make a new one. And it's there that we will dwell for all of eternity with him. Do you know every time you come into God's word, you're being reminded of the truth of who Jesus is and the joy that we have in him. Every time you open up God's word, you're fueling your joy in him. Do you know that? You're growing in your joy. You're reminding yourself, this God has saved me. This God rules. This God is returning. And this God I will be made like and dwell with for all of eternity. You know, when we gather like this as a church or in table groups, we're reminding ourselves that this right here is the citizenship of the kingdom of God. And one day, 
we're going to all be gathered around the throne crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we're going to be made just like Jesus and that we will be perfect and that we will forever build up one another and encourage one another. Every time we gather, we're encouraging each other and we're reminding each other of the joy we have in Christ. You know that? We read for our joy, we gather for our joy, and encourage one another for our joy. This is the joy the world needs to see. They don't need fake joy. Fake joy is everywhere. What they need is serious, hope-filled, everlasting joy. I just want to remind you, every time we come into scriptures, we're reminded of that joy. The world needs to see Christians that treasure Jesus above their cars, their houses, their lusts, their bank accounts, their families, and their lives. And we can because in Christ we have everything. Do you remember that verse in Romans 8? We are co-heirs with Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. He possesses everything. And in the Bible, he says that you're a co-heir with me. All that Jesus has, he shares with us. Which is why when we look at the things of this world, and we can say, yeah, I can, I can lose all of this. And if I gain Christ, that's far better. Because in Christ, we have everything. Do you know that truth? I encourage you. Make it a prayer every day that when you read God's word, that you ask Jesus to help you understand the word and to increase your joy. So that, you, so that your life would be a living testimony of the joy we have in Jesus. I encourage you, every time you're in the Word, just say, God, help me to understand this, and may I live out this joy. Fill me with joy today, that I would show others the joy we have in you. I want to just close by reading a quote by a missionary, David Livingstone. Many of you might know him or have heard of him. Uh, he lived in the 19th century. He spent most of his life in Africa. He sought to put an end to the African slave trade. On December 4th, 1857, he, goes, uh, he spoke at Cambridge University. And, and this topic is on leaving the benefits of England behind. All right, so here's a guy. He leaves all the comforts of England. He goes and lives in Africa. And he comes and says, I want to tell you why this is a good thing. And so this is what he says. For my own part... I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and, and peace of mind and a bright hope of glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. In his last words, I never made a sacrifice. I want you to think about that. He talks about that, and, and I love how he says, anxiety, sickness, suffering, danger, giving up the conveniences of life, they may make us pause. They may make our spirit to waver. Do you ever experience that? Sometimes as Christian, we do. We wrestle. Man, I don't have all these things, or I'm giving these things up. Or, or, and there is 
There's a sorrow in a sense there. But he says, as he reminds himself of the gospel, all these things are nothing when compared to the glory that should be revealed for us. That's what we learn in these parables. To gain the kingdom is far greater. And so when Livingstone looked at the unsurpassing grace and joy of the gospel, it makes him realize that no matter what hardship he has endured, it was never a sacrifice, but really only a privilege. I pray that we see that also. That we would rejoice and leap for joy. So I pray as we, uh, we're going to take communion. We're going to close in our doxology, and we're going to go out today. And I want to encourage you that we go out rejoicing and leaping for joy, but not just for a moment, but every day. And that every day we commit that we would build one up, that we would encourage each other, that we would remind ourselves of the joy that we have in Jesus. For there's no, no greater joy than being in the kingdom. Let me pray, and we'll take communion. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the joy of the gospel of your son Jesus that has saved us and brought us into the kingdom. Father, I pray that we were reminded today that there are many, many good things in this world, but there's only one thing that satisfies us. There's only one thing worthy of glory and honor and praise, and that is your son Jesus. So Father, I pray that you be glorified. I pray that today we would rejoice and leap for joy. And as we take communion now, May we do so with great joy, remembering at the cost of our salvation, it was the death of your son, Jesus. In your name, amen.